Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week we look into the Chancellor's funding settlement and ask what it means for defence. We hear from the Armed Forces Minister, James Heapy. This is enabling us to transform the force and to expand into new domains in a way that is militarily sensible. And we speak to Labour's Shadow Defence Secretary, John Healy. High-tech weaponry and systems are essential. It's highly trained forces that are absolutely indispensable. The former Chief of the Defence Staff, Lord Richards, and Professor Michael Clark from RUSI will join us to discuss how defence will look in 10 years' time. Also today on the programme, how gun bubbles are helping troops train for a deployment to Estonia. We process all of the data that the FSTs give us. And then what we do here is we turn that into a bearing, a fuse, and an elevation for the guns on the gun line. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. But first, SITREP is dedicating almost all of today's programme to the Chancellor's funding settlement for defence and what it means for the UK's security in the future. Defence will have an extra £16.5 billion over four years. It comes against the backdrop of the government's integrated review of foreign policy, defence and security, which is expected to be published in the new year. Well, earlier I spoke to the Armed Forces Minister, James Heapy. He said the extra funding comes on top of last year's manifesto commitments. What it achieves is not perfection. It doesn't mean that we can just go out and buy whatever we want to do, but I'm not sure we would do that anyway. You know, what it allows us to do is to look at our future force design, how we think the battle is going to change, and to disinvest and invest in capabilities based on that military logic, rather than being forced to take decisions simply on how much money we've been given by the Treasury. And so it's it's a great result. The Prime Minister said the money will enable investment in an artificial intelligence agency, a national cyber force, the future air combat system, Tempest, and a new space command. Is $16.5 billion enough? Well, it, it is enough to transform on the terms that we envisage. Of course, if you gave us $50 billion, we'd spend $50 billion. But, but the point is that what we needed was to be able to fill a black hole in our finances, which was fairly well reported. I'm not telling any tales out of school to, to say that. And to then give us what was what war was required to allow that transformation to be in the areas where we want to invest. So you've said cyber, there's AI, there is space, there's information manoeuvre. And to update capabilities in the more conventional domains, there are still some tough choices to be made. No one's pretending otherwise. But a lot of those tough choices are around capabilities that we know don't have a place in the future battle. So this shouldn't be characterised as a situation in which defence is having to delete stuff that we would really want to keep, buy stuff that we don't really need. This is enabling us to transform the force and to expand into new domains in a way that is militarily sensible. And as a defence minister, that gives me a lot of confidence to be able to say that to you. You say that you know there are things that won't be needed in future battle. What are those things? Where will the cuts be made in capabilities? Well, that, that's exactly what the chiefs are now working through. What we pitched a vision to 
the Prime Minister to win this money in the first place. And principally, that was around the requirement to get into new domains. There are debates that you will have seen around the future of fast air, the future of armoured manoeuvre, the future of the maritime battle and how many ships we need, all of which are alive and needing to be discussed. What we've invited our generals, admirals, air marshals to go away and now do is say, look, here's the future of the land battle. Here's the future of the, the air battle, the sea battle, as we envisage it. And very, very quickly, when you start to have those discussions with them, what you see is that there are some capabilities that in some places are sort of totemic. But actually, you can say, well, not sure I can see the utility of that. They say in their military judgment they can't see the utility of it and so that allows us to make some decisions i'm not going to say at this stage what the things are that are up for discussion because i think it sets a hair running within the defense community that would be unhelpful when we haven't fully tested our own logic internally within the mod but it should be a reassurance to those who watch and listen to your program that what we're inviting are a set of military judgments from the military experts within the MOD, not politically motivated decisions based on what we can afford. Labour says the government must make good a big shortfall in troop numbers. Quarterly figures from the Ministry of Defence show the size of the British Army has been steadily falling over the past decade. Well, I mean, I think that uh, that is an easy and, if I dare say so, slightly lazy opposition line to take. The idea that the driver for the size of the force is just the requirement to meet a number on paper seems illogical to me surely what you want to do is to invite generals admirals air marshals to say this is what the future capability looks like and this is the manning requirement for it and then we as politicians have to go into bat to work out how we resource that the, the, to be to simply point to a number on a page and say surely it must be that well well, why? I mean, what, what, what's, the, what's the force design that justifies that? There are fears that the number of soldiers are going to be cut. Can you guarantee they won't? Well, like I said, I think what we've invited our generals to do is to look at what the future of the land battle is, look at the capabilities that we, we require, look at the areas in which we want to expand our capability, look at the areas in which actually it looks like technology has just taken over, and we'll make a judgment. There is, I can promise you, however, that there is no number currently being sort of taken as fact within the offices of ministers in the MOD. We are inviting our generals to consider what the army requires, and then we will have that discussion. Of course, the immediate issue of the forces are visibly dealing with is COVID-19, mass testing in Liverpool and now Merthyr Tydfil, as well as that announcement from number 10 that the armed force will be used to help test in tier three areas when this lockdown ends. How many personnel will we be seeing in our towns and cities going forward? Well, we are preparing to provide as many as we physically can. We recognise that the demand on military manpower may grow significantly over the next few weeks and we're really running the rule over everything else that we're doing and working out how we might be able to generate even more yet uh, throughout the whole covid pandemic the logic that we've applied in this building is that it's not for us to be in the lead this is a 
This is principally a public health battle. But wherever we have the resources and expertise to support, we are doing our absolute best to make that to make those personnel and that expertise available to be part of the response. Of course, all eyes are on a mass vaccination programme. How will the military be involved in that? Again, there is uh, no uh, formal requirement yet articulated, but we would expect that we would have something to offer uh, in the logistical support of it. And we are preparing ourselves to be ready to do so if the Department for Health and Social Care asks us to be involved. Well, I spoke to the minister just before the Chancellor's announcement on public sector pay, but this was his response when I asked whether it would be right to cut the foreign aid budget. The Chancellor is yet to give his statement, but I think that we in defence always observe when these sorts of discussion, especially when it's presented as a binary aid v defence thing, just look at the utility of what the Ministry of Defence does in support of humanitarian efforts around the world. We are involved in UN peacekeeping missions around the world. RFA Argus has just put in the most extraordinary shift in the Caribbean. She deployed early. She's been there supporting the overseas territories with their COVID response. She's now supporting Honduras in the in the wake of hurricanes. So we feel quite uncomfortable with people sort of saying, oh, well, our gain is their loss. We see a phenomenal effort put in by our people and our assets around the world supporting the UK's humanitarian efforts. And we're really proud of that. James Heapy. Well, I've also been speaking to Labour's Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy, who first gave me his response to the extra 16.5 billion funding for defence. It's welcome. It promises uh, an overdue upgrade of Britain's military after a decade of decline in which we've seen really two previous Conservative defence reviews simply be a cover for cuts, which has left us after a decade spending £8 billion a year less in real terms and an armed forces which is a quarter smaller uh, and short of strength uh, for the modern era. Would you then concur with James Heapy when he says it allows investment in capabilities based on military logic rather than being forced to make decisions based simply on what's been given by the Treasury? It does indeed, but the challenge now is for the MOD to do what it does generally very badly, which is delivery, delivery, delivery. It's got to avoid the mistakes that we saw after 2015 when George Osborne did give defence a bit more money after deep cuts. But they fudged the spending decisions with so-called efficiency savings to leave a 13 billion black hole. Uh, And they put off really important decisions about, for instance, new supply ships, uh, the new radar system and new planes to fly off the new aircraft carriers. So there are some big decisions and avoiding the mistakes of the past will be the real test. What would Labour's priorities be in investing in the new domains of space, AI, cyber, for example? And how would they be able to afford that when you've still got the black hole to fill? Well, first and foremost, and running throughout for me, there's got to be a recognition that while high-tech weaponry and systems are essential, it's highly trained forces that are absolutely indispensable. And I'd want to see as part of this integrated review, when we get this review, avoid the mistake of the last two and give proper priority to personnel who've got to be at the heart of it. And it's just not good enough that we go into this latest review with 12,000 
full-time forces short of where we should be. Yeah, I did put that to James Heapy, that Labour says there is a shortfall in troop numbers to make up. He said that was an easy and slightly lazy opposition line and that government is inviting military chiefs to consider what the future capability looks like, the requirement for it. Then it's up to politicians to work out how to resource that. Well, it's not easy, is it? And it's not, um, uh, it's not a cheap line. This is the level of full-time forces that the government itself, five years ago in their last review, said this country needed in order to meet our security uh, requirements. And they failed to put those troops in place. They failed to give it the priority. And as we move, quite rightly, to much higher tech systems, into the domains of cyber and space, uh, and unmanned weaponry, and, uh, and systems, we've got to remember that at the heart have got to be our full-time highly trained troops. And look, if we needed a reminder of that, the operation in the channel recently where special forces had to take back the uh, oil tanker or indeed the big deployment in Liverpool to help deal with the COVID crisis, it reminds us that at the heart, it's our personnel that really count. Of course, you can't afford everything. Tough choices do have to be made. Where would you make cuts to capabilities if you were in government? Do you know, that's really hard for anybody outside government to make that call in detail. We don't have access to the assessments of risk. We don't have access to the budgetary information, which is why the funding announcement last week is a really good step forward. But it's a funding uh, settlement, if you like, without a strategy. And that's why the integrated review is so essential. That has really got to set out for us an assessment of the evolving uh, and multiplying risks we face, the capabilities that we need, and some of the tough decisions that have been put off for too long over tanks, over new ships, over aircraft, and of course, how we deal with the, the challenges that we're going to face in space as well. You've praised the work of the armed forces and their support in combating the COVID pandemic. Is there more you think they could do? Yes, uh, I've been consistent about this from the start. I think one of the, the great things we've seen from the forces is many of the qualities that British people respect so much in the forces, which is that sense of service and discipline. And what I'm saying to the Secretary of State now is, in this second lockdown, with a view to a long winter ahead and a big challenge over the vaccination programme, if he's willing to make more use of the armed forces to help the country through, he'll have our support and I think he'll have the public support as well. The Chancellor has said the government is targeting its resources at those who need it most. He's announced a pay rise for lower paid and NHS workers, but a pay freeze for others. Is that the right thing to do? Well, there was a pay rise in the system. So what he's effectively done is to take a slice of uh, public service workers, including the armed forces, and said, you won't get a pay rise in these circumstances when I think this is going to demoralise a lot of people that have been at the heart of trying to see this country through the COVID crisis and at a time when it makes no sense to be taking spending power out of an economy which is badly flagging. So I think this is a huge disappointment that the government when it feels it needs to find some savings comes first for public service workers including the armed forces. What's your reaction to the cut in the aid budget from 0.7 to 0.5% of GDP? The Chancellor said it would be temporary and the UK would still be the second highest aid donor in the G7 group of major economies. And James Heapy has pointed out the MOD does a lot supporting humanitarian efforts around the world. I see it as a major mistake. Uh, 
for well over a decade since the last Labour government. This has been a matter that's well beyond party politics. There's been a cross-party consensus and very broad public backing for the idea that Britain makes its commitment of 0.7% of GDP to aid. And no country that is serious about its role and responsibilities in the world is going to scale back on aid or on military investment. And in truth, we need to be doing both. It's not one or the other, and I'm really disappointed that the government has gone gunning for the aid budget in this way. Well, with me now is former Chief of the Defence Staff, Lord Richards, now Senior Member of the Think Tank, the European Leadership Network, and Professor Michael Clark, the former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute and an advisor on national security strategy. Uh, Lord Richards, this settlement has been widely welcomed, but we've heard the arguments there about putting the money to best use. Part of that is an assessment of the risks, isn't it? Yes, I mean, uh, I found myself agreeing uh, towards the end of the interview with John Healy with him quite a lot. I mean, given the pressure on the country's finances, uh, this is an excellent settlement. Uh, I think it's better than most of us uh, anticipated. Uh, and I have to say, it's not just the amount of money, it's the fact that it's a four-year settlement. It does allow defence chiefs to plan more efficiently and into the longer term. Um, but there are flaws, um, and John Healy uh, brought one out. There's no underpinning defence strategy, uh, and I think this is absolutely needed if uh, this extra money is to be spent wisely and coherently. Um, the bulk of the... Uh, so I just finished the so-called integrated review. It's been completed, uh, we think, uh, and this is a guide, but it's not a strategy. So I do have some reservations, and perhaps uh, we'll come back to those in a minute. What, what do you think of what uh, James Heapy said, that it's been put back to the service chiefs now to work out uh, what they need, what, they, what, they, what their vision is, and then they'll work out what's needed money-wise to fund what they'll be asking for? Well, I mean, having been there, uh, you know, I feel for them because there isn't enough money to do uh, what we think we probably need to do. Uh, the most important and difficult issue confronting them is how do we transition from, if you like, the industrial era to the, the in information era? And that's, that's going to take another 15 to 20 years and in the meanwhile uh, more traditional capabilities are going to be required and that's what is recognized by most of our allies uh, and potential adversaries as still being required so they have a real problem managing the transition although in my judgment the direction of travel uh, is broadly right but do you accept that traditional capabilities will have to go and if so which well, I don't accept that they have to go. I think there is still uh, a, a necessary role for them for a number of years yet. Uh, these new technologies have got to be like, if you like, weaponized and made coherent, and that's going to take time. We're just now uh, creating um, the start of these capabilities. I mean, obviously, there's some residual understanding in places like the GCHQ and so on, but essentially, this is... Uh, a 15-year time frame that we should be looking at it over. And in the meanwhile, um, things will happen that will require more traditional capabilities. So I, I don't accept that the issue of transitioning has not been addressed, and I suspect it'll be the biggest headache uh, confronting the chiefs. Yes, and Michael Clark, what is going on with the integrated review in Whitehall? 
Uh, well, it's gone back into the mix to some degree. It's, it was essentially finished um, for the end of this month, um, by which we mean that the, the, the various choices had been articulated and they were ready to be put to ministers. But when the Comprehensive Spending Review, which uh, we heard about yesterday, when it was put back as a, as a three-year settlement, just a one-year review, a, a sort of quick and dirty thing to get us through the particular crisis that we're in, once that happened, then the integrated review, in a sense, took a couple of steps back because it meant that a number of other things were still up for negotiation. And one of the things, as Lord Richard says, that is up for negotiation is how the MOD and the armed services are going to deliver on this you know, extra cash that they will be getting. So I think there may be other changes that will be built into the review before we see it at the end of January or even early February. Where do you think the risk assessment will point to? It's pretty clear to me that the risk assessment is, you know, how to integrate these new technologies and what are we going to spend on? What are we going to stop spending money on? I mean, as I see it, the, with the extra cash, I can only find two billion in this extra cash that looks as if it's going to be spent on space and cyber. It looks as if one and a half billion is due for cyber and about half a billion for space. We don't know how much the artificial intelligence, the AI center may absorb yet. That's a much bigger project in a way. Um, and a lot of the cash looks as if it's going into what the prime minister called a renaissance in shipbuilding. So it confirms that there will be the Type 26s and the Type 31, it will, there'll be five Type 31s will be built. And in a way, you know, they're all traditional platforms. And although they'll have the best on them, we've got to ask ourselves how much of this cash is actually going to be spent on genuinely transformational forces and i think you know that's a big question and and that's where all the risk occurs are you just going to try and catch up on the the equipment that you haven't had in recent years so you use this money to actually get back on track or are you going to take really hard decisions and spend more of it proportionately on things which are less obvious than some of the platforms, but probably a better deal in the long run? Mm. Lord Richards, on the subject of public sector pay, there was a pay restraint when you were the chief of the defence staff. What's your reaction to plans to freeze armed forces pay apart from people earning less than 24000 a year? Well, obviously I'm disappointed by this decision, but I do understand that, and I count myself, along with Michael, as being a, something of a strategist, I do understand that from a grand strategic point of view, the country is in a real pickle and difficult decisions have to be made. Um, we, uh, post the financial crash, crash uh, as you rightly said, uh, we, we weathered that storm for about two or three years, uh, and then, you know, we, we got some catch-up pay. Um, but I, 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 it's a difficult one, um, uh, you know, Kate. I think it's, it's one of those things, as I look round my local high street and I talk to people, I know that they are in a far worse position than most of the soldiers that I still know. And I speak to them occasionally as I go to my nearby base to do things. Um, and it's not, it's not such a big issue uh, as I thought it might be. And I, I think that speaks legions for the armed forces. Mm, interesting. Uh, Michael Clark, um, on the subject of overseas aid, how much is it an issue with our allies? The Chancellor says even after the cut, we're still the second biggest donor in the G7 after the United States. We are, um, and we deliver international assistance in all sorts of ways, as the government points out. But the, as they say these days, the optics of this are terrible. 
um, because for the sake of of the four billion that it will save this year, and remember, you know, we are we are borrowing um, close to four hundred billion to get over this uh, particular COVID crisis. Three hundred ninety-five, I think, was the last figure. Um, for the sake of the four billion, we will save. We are actually damaging our international image because the rest of the world won't look at the detail. They'll just simply say Britain has resiled from its legal commitment. Uh, a legal commitment adopted in 2015 and repeated in the Conservative manifesto only a year ago, and these commitments mean nothing to the British. Remember, we've got we've got a lot of previous at the moment when it comes to uh, not honouring our agreements. We've got a, a whole series of issues in which Britain looks as if it doesn't take its its own word very seriously. I mean, the, the point that um, that was made by James Heapy, Lord Richards, um, was the, the efficacy of the military. And one of the defences of cutting overseas aid is the difference the military can make. How much should the UK be relied upon, do you think, to fulfil a humanitarian and stabilising role? They are, if I may say, slightly different issues. I think humanitarian you know, operations are vital uh, and we owe uh, a duty to particularly countries in the Commonwealth, but not just those, to help them you know, when they are suffering famine, floods or whatever it is. And that is actually good uh, military activity too, because it exercises our command and control, our resilience and all those sort of things. Uh, Stabilisation, uh, which might uh, stem from that sort of activity uh, over the longer term, I think is a different issue. Uh, and, and, and probably needs a longer discussion we've got time for here. Um, I, I'm worried just to go back because this should all be driven, as Michael hinted earlier, by a defence strategy uh, uh, which will determine where we put our priorities and what we spend our money on. The, the even the integrated review was not a defence strategy. It might have led to a defence strategy and here we are discussing uh, things like this that should have had a lot of uh, light shed on them if we had that strategy to hand. Perhaps we should reconvene in the new year. Lord Richards, thank you very much for your time. Professor Michael Clark, thank you as well. Now, after a summer helping build Nightingale hospitals and testing for COVID, three regiments Royal Horse Artillery are finally getting back to gunning. The unit invented gun bubbles to allow them to return to training in preparation for deployment to Estonia next year. Hannah King brings us this special report on the gun bubbles of Northumberland. Ah! Three RHA's new gun bubbles have allowed them to get back out on the ranges and doing what they do best. I think before you do fire, you get like a bit nervous, don't you? Yeah. Because you're like, you start flapping a bit and you're like, well, I'm scared of what's going on. Gunner Georgie Jones and Lance Bombardier Natalia Hudson Carrier are delighted to be back on the guns. As soon as number one says that word, you just gotta you get it away. But it's, it's a sh you can like sort of like feel it, yeah, can't yeah. you? It's pretty powerful, yeah. If it's your first time. Especially if you're on the layer seat, you don't know what's coming because obviously when you when you do like pull that trigger down, you, you've got to be bouncing off the seat and yeah. stuff. So once you've done it after a while, you're all right with it. Well, I'm Bum Campbell, two battery, three RHJ. We've had major setbacks because of the pandemic and that, and then getting back back into it's just a quick shake out and then it just comes back to you naturally. Their new gun bubbles break them down into small teams, so if anyone's infected, it hopefully won't bring the regiment down. Gunner Taylor Claxton explains. The six guns and roughly is about six to seven gun buddies on that one and we, we've lived together for the past two weeks. We see other people but we, we stay together in our bubble. Yeah. We don't go to different guns, just our one gun. 
Hello, Golf Delta 1 Zero. This is Golf Delta 5 5. The regiment is split across Otterburn training area. The firepower lie to the south using woodblock for cover. But this is indirect fire. The gunners don't have sight of their target. On the high ground further north are their eyes, the forward observers sitting at the observation post. They can see the target, the impact area, and send instructions back to the gunners. A grid 880, a 045. They pinpoint their target and they'll then send down a grid. This is Lieutenant Lucy Henry. And because we know where they are and what they're seeing, we can then translate their speak into gun speak so we process all of the data that the FSTs give us and then what we do here is we turn that into a bearing, a fuse and an elevation for the guns on the gun line and what that means is basically what direction they're pointing in, how high they're pointing and how long the projectile is going to travel for and then once we're all laid on and set they will send down the order to fire and uh, the CP which is like the control element on the gun line, will then order the guns to fire. Fire out. Fire. Fire. You don't get many girls here, yeah. so we, we, we're quite clicky, aren't we? Yeah. But it's good. It's, yeah. yeah, the lads are good as well. Why do, why do you think there aren't many girls? It's hard. It's, it is graft, like, it is hard. like weight-wise as well. Yeah. It's just hard graft because there's a lot of yeah. like heavy weight you've got to carry and stuff yeah, it's like heavy. that. So. It's the lads do it and we do it as well. Number six, ready, down safety. Next year, the unit head to Estonia, ready to play their part in Operation Kabrit. The army may have just announced a new cyber force and space command, but there's still the need for guns, once pulled by horses, lined up with a grid reference and fired from soggy terrain. The enemy comes in many forms. Hannah King reporting there. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.